Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. You're listening to Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio with your reader, Anna Mercer. We're reading Mortal Engines by Philip Reeve. The story so far. Our protagonist is Tom Natsworthy, a 15-year-old apprentice historian working in the London Museum centuries in the future. When the roving city of London caught and ate a small town after a long drought with no catches, Tom met the head historian Valentine and his beautiful teenage daughter Catherine in London's gut, to see whether any interesting historical artefacts had been discovered by the salvage crews dismantling the town. But one scavenger brought aboard the City of London had something else for Valentine. A knife. Chapter 3. The Waste Chute There was no time to think. Catherine screamed, dog growled, the girl hesitated for a moment, and Tom saw his chance and threw himself forward, grabbing her arm as she drove the knife at Valentine's heart. She hissed, writhing, and the knife dropped to the deck as she twisted free and darted away along the catwalk. Stop her! bellowed Valentine, starting forward, but the other refugees had seen the knife and were milling about in fright, barring his way. Several of the scavengers had pulled out firearms, and an armoured policeman came lumbering through the crowd like a huge blue beetle, shouting, No guns allowed in London! Glancing over the scavengers' heads, Tom glimpsed a dark silhouette against the distant glare of furnaces. The girl was at the far end of the catwalk, climbing nimbly up a ladder to a higher level. He ran after her and snatched at her ankle as she reached the top. He missed by a few inches, and at the same moment a dart hissed past him, striking sparks from the rungs. He looked back. Two more policemen were thrusting through the crowd with crossbows raised. Beyond them, he could see Catherine and her father watching him. "'Don't shoot!' he shouted. "'I can catch her!' He flung himself at the ladder and scrambled eagerly upwards, determined to be the one to capture the would-be assassin. He could feel his heart pounding with excitement. After all those dull years spent dreaming of adventures, suddenly he was having one. He had saved Mr Valentine's life. He was a hero. The girl was already heading along the maze of high-level catwalks which led towards the furnace district. Hoping that Catherine could still see him, Tom set off in pursuit. The catwalk forked and narrowed, the handrails only a yard apart. Below him, the work of the digestion yards went on regardless. No one down there had noticed the drama being played out above their heads. He plunged through deep shadows and warm, blinding clouds of steam, with the girl always a few feet ahead. A low duct caught her headscarf and ripped it off. Her long hair was coppery in the dim glow of the furnaces, but Tom still couldn't see her face. He wondered if she was pretty a beautiful assassin from the Anti-Traction League. He ducked past the dangling headscarf and ran on, gasping for breath, fumbling his collar open. Down a giddy spiral of iron stairs and out onto the floor of the digestion yards, flashing through the shadows of conveyor belts and huge spherical gas tanks. A gang of convict labourers looked up in amazement as the girl raced by. Stop her! yelled Tom. 
They just stood gawping as he passed, but when he looked back, he saw that one of the apprentice engineers who had been supervising them had broken off his work to join the chase. Tom immediately regretted shouting out, he wasn't going to give up his victory to some stupid engineer. He put on an extra spurt of speed so that he should be the one who caught her. Ahead, the way was barred by a circular hole in the deck plate, ringed by rusty handrails, a waste chute, scorched and blackened where clinker from the furnaces had been tipped down. The girl broke her pace for a moment, wondering which way to turn. When she went on, Tom had narrowed her lead. His outstretched fingers grabbed her pack. The strap broke and she stopped and spun to face him, lit by the red glare of the smelters. She was no older than Tom and she was hideous. A terrible scar ran down her face from forehead to jaw, making it look like a portrait that had been furiously crossed out. Her mouth was wrenched sideways in a permanent sneer. Her nose was a smashed stump and her single eye stared at him out of the wreckage, as grey and chill as a winter sea. Why didn't you let me kill him? she hissed. He was so shocked that he couldn't move or speak could only stand there as the girl reached down for her fallen pack and turned to run on. But behind him, police whistles were blowing and crossbow darts came sparking against the metal deck plates and the overhead ducts. The girl dropped the pack and fell sideways, gasping a filthy curse. Tom hadn't even imagined that girls knew such words. Don't shoot, he yelled, waving towards the policemen. They were lumbering down the spiral stair beyond the gas tanks, shooting as they came as if they didn't much care that Tom was in the way. Don't shoot! The girl scrambled up and he saw that a crossbow dart had gone through her leg just above the knee. She clutched at it, blood welling out between her fingers. Her breath came in sobs as she backed up against the handrail, lifting herself awkwardly over it. Behind her, the waist chute gaped like an open mouth. No! shouted Tom, seeing what she meant to do. He didn't feel like a hero anymore. He just felt sorry for this poor, hideous girl and guilty at being the one who had trapped her here. He held out his hand to her, willing her not to jump. I couldn't let you hurt Mr Valentine, he said, shouting to make her hear him over the din of the gut. He's a good man, a kind, brave, wonderful. The girl lunged forward, shoving her awful, noseless face towards him. Look at me, she said, her voice all twisted by her twisted mouth. Look what your brave, kind Valentine did to me. What do you mean? Ask him she screamed. Ask him what he did to Hester Shaw. The police were closer now. Tom could feel their footsteps drumming on the deck. The girl glanced past him, then heaved her wounded leg over the handrail, crying out at the pain. No, pleaded Tom again, but too late. Her ragged greatcoat snapped and fluttered and she was gone. He flung himself forward and peered down the shadowed chute. A cool blast of air came up at him, mingled with the smell of mud and crushed vegetation, the smell of the speeding earth beneath the city. No! She had jumped. She had jumped right out of the city to her death. Hester Shaw. He would have to remember that name and say a prayer for her to one of London's many gods. Shapes loomed out of the drifting smoke. The policemen were advancing cautiously, like watchful crabs, and Valentine was with them, running ahead. In the shadows, under a gas tank, Tom saw the young engineer, looking on, shocked. Tom tried to smile at him, but his face felt frozen, and the next moment another thick swag of smoke had folded over him, blotting out everything. Tom, are you all right? 
Valentine ran up, barely winded by the long chase. Where is she? Where is the girl? Dead, Tom said lamely. Valentine stood beside him at the handrail and peered over. The shadows of the drifting smoke moved over his face like cobwebs. There was a strange light in his eyes, and his face was tight and white and frightened. Did you see her, Tom? Did she have a scar? Yes, said Tom, wondering how Valentine could know that. It was horrible. Her eye was gone and and her nose. Then he remembered the terrible thing the girl had told him. And she said... But he wasn't sure if if he should tell Mr Valentine what she had said. It was a lie. Insane. She said her name was Hester Shaw. Great work, hissed Valentine, and Tom flinched backwards, wishing he had never mentioned it. But when he looked up again, Valentine was smiling kindly at him, his eyes full of sorrow. Don't worry, Tom, he said. I'm sorry. Tom felt a big, gentle hand on his shoulder, and then, he was never quite sure how it happened, a twist, a shove, and he was pitching over the handrail and falling, just as Hester Shaw had fallen, flailing wildly for a hold on the smooth metal at the brim of the waist chute. He pushed me, he thought, and it was more amazement, he felt, than fear, as the black throat swallowed him down into the dark. Chapter 4. The Out Country Silence. Silence. He couldn't understand it. Even when London wasn't moving, there was usually some sort of noise in the dormitory. The whir of ventilators, the hum and rattle of distant elevator shafts, the snores of other apprentices in the neighbouring bunks. But now silence. His head ached. In fact, all of him ached. His bunk felt strange too, and when he moved his hands, there was something cold and slimy that oozed between his fingers like... Mud! He sat up, gasping. He wasn't in the third-class dormitory at all. He was lying on a great humpbacked mound of mud on the edge of a deep trench, and in the thin pearl-grey light of dawn he could see the girl with the ruined face sitting nearby. His horrible dream of sliding down that fire-blackened chute had been true. He had fallen out of London, and he was alone with Hester Shaw on the bare earth. He moaned in terror, and the girl glanced quickly round at him and then away. "'You're alive, then?' she said. "'I thought you'd died.' She sounded as if she didn't much care either way. Tom scrambled up onto all fours, so that only his knees and his toes and the palms of his hands were touching the mud. His arms were bare, and when he looked down he saw that his bruised body was naked to the waist. His tunic lay on the mud nearby, but he couldn't find his shirt at all, until he crawled closer to the scarred girl and realised that she was busily tearing it into strips which she was using to bandage her wounded leg. Hey, he said, that's one of my best shirts. So, she replied without looking up, it's one of my best legs. He pulled his tunic on. It was tattered and filthy from his fall down the waist chute, full of rents that let the chill out-country air through. He hugged himself, shivering. Valentine pushed me. He pushed me, and I fell down the shaft into the outcountry. He pushed me. No, he can't have done. It must have been a mistake. I slipped, and he tried to grab me. That's what must have happened. 
Hester Shaw finished her bandaging and stood up, grunting at the pain as she pulled her filthy, blood-stiffened breeches on over the wound. Then she threw what was left of Tom's shirt back at him, a useless rag. "'You should have let me kill him,' she said, and turned away, setting off with a kind of furious limp up the long curve of the mud. Tom watched her go, too shocked and bewildered to move. It was only when she vanished over the top of the slope that he realised he didn't want to be left alone here. He would prefer any company, even hers, to the silence. He flung the torn shirt away and ran after her, slithering in the thick, clagging mud, stubbing his toes on fragments of rock and torn-up roots. The deep, sheer-walled trench yawned on his left, and as he reached the crest of the rise, he realised that it was just one of a hundred identical trenches. The huge track marks of London stretching ruler straight into the distance. Far, far ahead he saw his city, dark against the brightening eastern sky, wrapped in the smoke of its own engines. He felt the cold tug of homesickness. Everyone he had ever known was aboard that dwindling mountain. Everyone except Hester, who was stomping angrily after it, dragging her injured leg behind her. Stop, he shouted, half running, half wading to catch her up. Hester, Miss Shaw. Leave me alone, she snapped. But where are you going? I've got to get back into London, haven't I? She said. Two years it took me to find it, trudging across the out country on foot, jumping aboard little townlets in the hope that it would be London that scoffed them. And when I finally get there and find Valentine, come down to strut round the yards just like the scavengers he told me he would, what happens? Some idiot stops me from cutting his heart out like he deserves. She stopped walking and turned to face Tom. If you hadn't shoved your oar in, he'd be dead, and I'd have fallen down and died beside him, and I'd be at peace by now. Tom stared at her, and before he could stop himself, his eyes filled with stinging tears. He hated himself for looking like a fool in front of Hester Shaw, but he couldn't help it. The shock of what had happened to him, and the thought of being abandoned out here, overwhelmed him, and the hot tears flooded down his face and cut white runnels through the mud on his cheeks. Hester, who had been on the point of turning away, stopped and watched, as if she wasn't sure what was happening to him. "'You're crying,' she said at last, quite gently, sounding surprised. "'Sorry,' he sniffed. "'I never cry. I can't. I didn't even cry when Valentine murdered my mum and dad.' "'What?' Tom's voice was all wobbly from weeping. "'Mr Valentine would never do something like that.' Catherine said he couldn't even bring himself to shoot a wolf cub. You're lying. How come you're here then? She asked, mocking him. He shoved you out after me, didn't he? Just because you'd seen me. You're lying, said Tom again. But he remembered those big hands thrusting him forward. Remembered falling and the strange light that had shone in the archaeologist's eyes. Well, asked Hester. He pushed me murmured Tom, amazed. Hester Shaw just shrugged, as if to say, See? See what he's really like? Then she turned away and started walking again. Tom hurried along at her side. I'll come with you. I've got to get back to London too. I'll help you. You? She gave a hissing laugh and spat on the mud at his feet. I thought you were Valentine's man. Now you want to help me kill him. Tom shook his head. He didn't know what he wanted. 
Part of him still clung to the hope that it was all a misunderstanding, and Valentine was good and kind and brave. He certainly didn't want to see him murdered and poor Catherine left without a father. But he had to catch up with London somehow, and he couldn't do it alone. And anyway, he felt responsible for Hester Shaw. It was his fault that she had been wounded after all. "'I'll help you walk,' he said. "'You're injured. You need me.' "'I don't need anybody.' she said fiercely. We'll go after London together, Tom promised. I'm a member of the Guild of Historians. They'll listen to me. I'll tell Mr Pomeroy. If Valentine really did the things you said, then the law will deal with him. The law, she scoffed. Valentine is the law in London. Isn't he the Lord Mayor's favourite? Isn't he the head historian? No, he'll kill me unless I kill him first. Kill you too, probably. Shwing! She mimed drawing a sword and driving it through Tom's chest. The sun was rising, lifting wreaths of steam from the wet mud. London was still moving, visibly smaller since the last time he looked. The city usually stopped for a few days when it had eaten, and some part of Tom's brain that was not quite numb wondered idly, where on earth is it going? But just then the girl stumbled and fell, her bad leg crumpling under her. Tom scrambled to help her up. She didn't thank him, but she didn't push him away either. He pulled her arm round his shoulders and hauled her up, and they set off together along the mud ridge, following London's tracks into the east. Chapter 5. The Lord Mayor A hundred miles ahead, the sunrise shone on Circle Park, the elegant loop of lawns and flower beds that encircled Tier 1. It gleamed in ornamental lakes and on pathways glistening with dew, and it glittered on the white metal spires of Cleo House, Valentine's Villa, which stood among dark cedars at the park's edge, like some gigantic conch shell abandoned by a freak high tide. In her bedroom on the top floor, Catherine awoke and lay watching the sunbeams filter through the tortoise-shell shutters on her window. She knew she was unhappy, but at first she did not know why. Then she remembered the previous evening, the attack in the gut, and how that poor, sweet young apprentice had chased after the assassin and got himself killed. She had gone running after father, but by the time she reached the waste chute, it was all over. A young apprentice engineer was stumbling away, his shocked face as white as his rubber coat, and beyond him she found father, looking pale and angry, surrounded by policemen. She had never seen him look like that before nor heard the harsh, unnatural voice in which he snapped at her to go straight home. Part of her just wanted to curl up and go back to sleep, but she had to see him and make sure he was all right. She flung back the quilt and got up, pulling on the clothes last night that lay all crumpled on the floor, still smelling of furnaces. Outside her bedroom door, a hallway sloped gently down, downward, round-roofed, curling about on itself like the inside of an ammonite. She hurried to down it, pausing to pay her respects before the statue of Cleo, goddess of history, who stood in a niche outside the door to the dining room. In other niches lay treasures that her father had brought back from his expeditions. Pot shards, fragments of computer keyboards, and the rusting metal skulls of stalkers, those strange half-mechanical soldiers from a forgotten war. Their cracked glass eyes stared balefully at Catherine as she hurried by. Father was drinking coffee in the atrium, the big open space at the centre of the house. 
He was still in his dressing gown, his long face serious as he paced up and down between the potted ferns. A glance at his eyes was enough to tell Catherine that he had not slept at all. Father? she asked. What's happened? Oh, Kate! He came and hugged her tight. What a night! That poor boy, Catherine whispered. Poor Tom! I suppose they didn't find anything? Valentine shook his head. The assassin dragged him with her when she jumped. They were both drowned in the mud of the outcountry or crushed beneath the tracks. Oh, whispered Catherine and sat down on the edge of a table, not even noticing Dog when he came padding in to rest his great head on her knee. Poor Tom, she thought. He had been so sweet, so eager to please. She had really liked him. She had even thought of asking Father about bringing him up to work at Cleo House so she and Dog could get to know him better. And now he was dead, his soul fled down to the sunless country and his body lying cold in the cold mud somewhere in the city's wake. The Lord Mayor isn't happy, said Valentine, glancing at the clock. An assassin loose in the gut on London's first day back in the hunting ground. He's coming down here in person to discuss it. Will you sit with me while I wait for him? You can have some of my breakfast if you like. There is coffee on the table, rolls, butter. I have no appetite at all. Catherine had no appetite either, but she glanced at the food and noticed a battered leather pack lying on the far side of the table. It was the pack the girl assassin had dropped in the gut last night, and its contents were spread out around it like exhibits in a strange museum. A metal water bottle, a first aid kit, some string, a few strips of dried meat that looked tougher than the tongues of old boots, and a stained and crumpled sheet of paper with a photograph stapled to it. Catherine picked it up. It was an identity form, issued in a town called Stroll, filthy and faded and coming apart along the creases. Before she could study the writing, her eye was drawn to the photograph. She gasped. Father, her face! Valentine turned, saw her holding the paper and snatched it from her hand with an angry cry. No, Kate, that is not for your eyes. It is not for anybody's eyes. He pulled out his lighter and carefully lit a corner of the form, folding it into the ashtray on his desk as it burned. Then he went back to his pacing and Catherine sat and watched him. In the ten years since she arrived in London, Catherine had come to think of him as her best friend as well as her father. They liked the same things and laughed at the same jokes and never kept secrets from each other. But she could see that he was keeping something from her about this girl. She had never seen him so worried by anything. Who is she, father? she asked. Do you know her from one of your expeditions? She's so young and so... Whatever happened to her face? There were footsteps, a knock at the door, and Pusey burst into the room. Lord Mayor's on his way, Chief. Already? gasped Valentine. Afraid so. Gench just saw him coming across the park in his bug, said he didn't look pleased. Valentine didn't look pleased either. He grabbed his robes from the chair back where they had been flung and started trying to make himself presentable. Catherine stepped forward to help, but she, he waved her away, so she kissed him quickly on the cheek and hurried out with Dog trotting beside her. Through the big oval windows of the drawing room, she could see a white official bug pulling in through the gates of Cleo House. A squad of soldiers ran ahead of it, dressed in the bright red armour of the Beefeaters, the Lord Mayor's personal bodyguard. 
they took up positions around the garden like ugly lawn ornaments as Gensch and one of the other servants hurried forward to open the bug's glastic lid. The Lord Mayor stepped out and came striding towards the house. Magnus Croom had been ruler of London for nearly 20 years, but he still didn't look like a Lord Mayor. The Lord Mayors in Catherine's history books were chubby, merry, red-faced men, but Croom was as thin as an old crow and twice as gloomy. He didn't even wear the scarlet robes that had been the pride and joy of other mares, but still dressed in his long white rubber coat and wore the red wheel of the Guild of Engineers upon his brow. Those earlier Lord Mayors had had their guild marks removed to show that they were serving the whole of London. But things had changed when Croom seized power, and even if some people said it was unfair for one man to be master of the engineers and Lord Mayor, they still admitted that Croom made a good job of running the city. Catherine didn't like him. She had never liked him, even though he had been so good to her father, and she was not in any mood to meet him this morning. As soon as she heard the front door iris open, she hurried back into the corridor and started up it, calling softly for Dog to follow her. She stopped as soon as she was around the first bend, hidden in a shallow alcove, resting the tips of her fingers on the wolf's head to keep him still. She could tell that some terrible trouble had overtaken her father, and she was not going to let him keep the truth from her, as if she was still a little girl. A few seconds later, she saw Gensch arrive at the door to the atrium, clutching his hat in his hands. "'This way, your worshipful honour," he mumbled, bowing. "'Mind your step, your mariners.' Close behind came Croom. He paused for a moment, his head flicking from side to side in an oddly reptilian way, and Catherine felt his gaze sweep the corridor like a wind from the ice wastes. She squeezed herself tighter into the alcove and prayed to Quirk and Cleo that he would not see her. For a moment she could hear his breathing and the faint squeaks and creakings of his rubber coat. Then Gensch led him into the atrium and the danger was past. With one hand firmly on Dog's collar, she crept back to the door and listened. She could hear Father's voice and imagine him standing beside the ornamental fountain while his men showed Croom to a seat. He started to make some polite comment about the weather, but the cold, thin voice of the Lord Mayor interrupted him. "'I have been reading your report of last night's escapade, Valentine. You assured me that the whole family had been dealt with.' Catherine flinched away from the door as though it had burned her. "'How dare the old man talk to Father like that?' She did not want to hear any more, but curiosity got the better of her, and she set her ear against the wood again. A ghost from my past, father was saying. I can't imagine how she escaped. And Quirk alone knows where she learned to be so agile and cunning. But she's dead now. So is the boy who caught her, poor Natsworthy. You are sure of that? They fell out of the city, Croom. That means nothing. We are travelling over soft ground. They may have survived. You should have sent men down to check. Remember, we don't know how much the girl knew of her mother's work. If she were to tell another city that we have Medusa before we are ready to use it, I know, I know, said Valentine irritably, and Catherine heard a chair creak as he flung himself down in it. I'll take the 13th floor elevator back and see if I can find the bodies. No, ordered Croom. I have other plans for you and your airship. I want you to fly ahead and see what lies between London and its goal. Croom, that's a job for a planning committee scout ship, not the elevator. 
No, snapped Croom again. I don't want too many people to know where we are taking the city. They will find out when the time is ripe. Besides, I have a task in mind that only you can be trusted with. And the girl? asked Valentine. Don't worry about her, said the Lord Mayor. I have an agent who can be relied on to track her down and finish the job you failed to do. Concentrate on preparing your airship, Valentine. The meeting was at an end. Catherine heard the Lord Mayor getting ready to leave and hurried away up the corridor before the door opened. Her mind whirling faster than one of the tumble dryers in the London Museum's Hall of Ancient Technology. Back in her room she sat down to wonder about the things she had heard. She had hoped to solve a mystery, but instead it had grown deeper. All she was sure of was that Father had a secret. He had never kept anything from her before. He always told her everything and asked her opinion and wanted her advice. But now he was whispering with the Lord Mayor about the girl being a ghost from his past and some agent being sent back to look for her and do what? Could Tom and the assassin really still be alive? And why was the Lord Mayor packing Father off on a reconnaissance flight amid such secrecy? And why didn't he want to say where London was going? And what, what on earth, was Medusa? And that's the end of this episode of Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. Tune in next time for chapter number six, Speedwell. Bedtime Stories on 1707 Radio. Peloton's best offer of the season is here. Get up to $300 off accessories when you purchase a Peloton bike, Bike Plus, or Tread. Choose from a variety of accessories, like our cycling shoes, a heart rate monitor, non-slip grip dumbbells, and more. If you've been looking for a sign to join Peloton, this offer gives you everything you need to get going. This limited-time offer ends November 28th. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access membership separate. Offer starts November 14th and ends November 28th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com.